This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. Emily Murphy is a big believer in the old adage, grow what you love. She's an avid home gardener, mother, trail runner, and blogger, known for her work under the name PassThePistol.com. She joins us today via Skype to share more about her passions and her garden journey. Welcome, Emily. Thank you so much for having me, Jennifer. I'm thrilled to be on your show. I'd like to start with you giving us, as visually as you can, an overview of what your current garden practice is. What does it include? Where do you garden? What are the kinds of things you grow on a seasonal basis, Emily? I grow, I grow in three separate gardens at the moment. I tend a garden that was uh, an an abandoned garden at a friend's plot um, not far from my home where I, it's biking distance, which is wonderful. Um, I brought that garden back to life. It was, uh, it's a, it's a bed of, um, it's a plot of two raised beds encompassed by a deer fence and it was overrun with weeds and, and, and as soon as I saw it, I fell in love and I knew that that I had to get my hands into it to bring it back to life. And um, that garden I call the Knoll Garden. And then my closest garden to home is a garden on my deck, and thus the deck garden. And then I was lucky recently to adopt uh, a garden um, in the community garden. So that, that's plot 31B. <laughs> Those plots, they're all very different. Their, mm. their climates are different. They, they have different growing challenges as well as uh, varying um, opportunities. And, and I grow different things in them. So in the deck garden, it's cooler. Uh, there's more cool air moving up from under the deck that, that sort of keeps those soils a little too cool for heat-loving crops in the summer, but it's perfect for greens and herbs and alpine strawberries and carrots and, you know, have all sorts of other plants, um, perennials and plants for pollinators. And the the knoll garden, it's kind of a mix. It's a little hit or miss. It depends on summer fog. Um, and I try to grow everything there because I have so much room and I have complete freedom. Um, and so I, I do grow a lot of greens there as well because I, I eat greens every day. So, you know, grow what you love. I try to grow the things that, that, that we really appreciate on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I kind of take it from there and I, that, that, that's a garden for me to experiment in. And then the community garden gets much more heat. Um, I grow flowers and tomatoes and cucumbers and lots of herbs. Last summer, I had a very large patch of flowering basil, a mix Mm. of African blue basil and Magic Mountain, and it was teeming with bees every day. (laughs) You'd get close to the plot and you'd hear buzzing. (laughs) Between the three of them, so it's almost like it's grow what you love wherever you can. Um, which which I'm, I'm loving the visualization of. You live in Northern California. Describe the climate and the, um, the lot you live on that means that you have the deck garden at your actual home. Right. So I live just over the, the Golden Gate Bridge from San Francisco in Southern Marin. And I'm very close to the ocean. I'm a stone's throw away, in a sense, from your beach. But really, it's about 
three miles as the crow flies. Um, but still, I get a lot of summer fog, as you can imagine, mm -hmm. being that close to the coast. And it's also very temperamental weather, and it can be incredibly warm one day and then cool. And um, But it also doesn't have a huge temperature swing. So um, because the ocean is there, it, it keeps things relatively mild. Um, so things never get too, too cold. I could grow bananas, for instance, um, but things also don't get too, too hot, which makes some crops like peppers and, again, especially heirloom tomatoes quite difficult. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And do you have any gardened area besides your deck around your actual house? You know, I don't right now. I'm renting that house. Um, we we moved down from the Lake Tahoe area about seven years ago mm -hmm. and... Um, where I actually had quite a bit of land, and we decided to just continue renting while we figure out what's next in our lives. Mm -hmm. And it's actually been a really interesting journey going from an acre plot um, to a deck garden, which is why I've sort of branched out to borrowing gardens and having a community garden plot. Mm -hmm. But it's been a really, it's been a really wonderful experience in that it's challenged my my gardening gardening repertoire, so to speak, and has um, really broadened my experience and deepened my understanding of growing plants in containers and um, paying attention even that much more because because um, they need plants in containers need a little more care than plants grown in the ground. At mm -hmm. least that's what I've found. Mm -hmm. All together with the deck garden and then the Knoll Garden and Plot 32B, what is your, what do you think is your total kind of square footage of growing area? How big are the raised beds at the Knoll Garden? The raised beds at the Knoll Garden are about three feet wide by 12 feet long. Ooh, big, yeah, nice. Which it's, it is, it's lovely. And then my deck garden, I have three troughs. So I garden in three troughs that are two by five to six feet, depending. Mm -hmm. um, and one of those is dedicated strictly to herbs and pollinator plants. And then the other two I grow veggies in. And then I also garden in um, wine crates. Mm -hmm. I've had the same set of six wine crates made out of pine for, uh, and I've gardened in them for six years. So <laughs> um, I, it's, a, it's a testament to the power of, of you know, any sort of container to make a garden. I, I, really, I really think they're pretty special because we think, of a, we think of redwood and cedar as the ultimate woods for, for gardening. But for, with these boxes have been phenomenal. I am gathering from you that plot 32B is your newest garden. How big is that? That plot is, um, I do have measurements, but now I'm forgetting them. I guess it's, if I pace myself across, it would take about three or four paces. So that's about nine feet wide. And it's probably about 13 feet long. Wow. Um, it's, a, it's a single bed. It's a single box that is that big. And so I have created a platform in the center to walk down so I don't compact the soil. Right. Um, it is quite large. Uh, 
but sometimes it doesn't feel large enough. The more space we have, the more we fill, right? <laughs> right, or a purse. Right. The bigger the, the purse, the more stuff you put in it. It's so true. But, uh, but at the same time, I think gardening in a small space, and even if I didn't have these three plots, um, I think gardening in a small space allows us to, or forces us, to focus our attention on the plants that that matter most, the plants mm. that bring the most joy, that... Um, are multifaceted they can they can multitask they can feed us they can feed the environment uh they're beautiful to look at and they bring us joy and yeah. and when we really fine tune the things we're planting and focus on just those things then i think really that's where the magic happens and and for me those three plots are really what allowed me to photograph and write the book grow what you love mm -hmm. um I feel like I wouldn't have had enough uh, material otherwise, but honestly, I could be happy with any one of these three plots and 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 really run with it and 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 have a whole bunch of fun. Yeah. Well, and circling back to what you were saying about your six-year-old six wine crates made out of pine, it really is a beautiful testament to the fact that if you are a gardener and if you have practiced this and, and cultivated this impulse in your life, it's really hard to hold you back from doing it wherever you can in one whatever way you are able to. You're absolutely right. It's it's something where if that impulse overtakes you and you just have to plant something, which I think we all have, even if you have listeners who, who don't feel as if they could grow anything for fear of killing it or for fear, fear of forgetting about it or ignoring it, I, I really think that we all have this opportunity to grow and do it well, and, and it could be in anything. As long as it holds soil and allows for drainage, drainage, it can be a garden. Yeah, exactly. I totally agree. So let's go to your earliest influences in gardening. And you, on your blog website, pastthepistol.com, you have some wonderful history of your family and you, and you have the loveliest photograph of you in your overalls, maybe you're sort of 9, 10, 11, and, um, and, and you say something about if you were around in the 70s, and it just, it really resonated with me, and I'm pretty sure we had matching overalls at the same time. So talk about your earliest beginnings and some of the gardening and cultivating history in your family, and then what brought you along as an adult to really incorporating this into your life? That's so fun that you you brought up that story. Um, yeah, if you were around in the '70s, you would have you would have noticed that I was the the house down the road with potatoes in our our yard instead of a front lawn. <laughs> um, that's sort of how it goes. And um, my I was really lucky to come from a family that was very land based, and. Uh, and from many, many different directions. So, and in all parts of my family. Um, my grandmother had a homestead in the Sonoma foothills and my grandfather, he had a farm in, um, actually in Petaluma. It was a dairy farm, but he also had rows and rows of carrots and lemon cucumbers in the summer and a pear orchard. Um, and those things, those things resonated with me. And it also helped that we always had a plot, a garden plot at home. Um, including those potatoes. So my, my father is, uh, 
my father's father, my paternal grandfather, is Portuguese, and it's a por- Portuguese tradition, or so I was told, <laughs> that uh, whenever you moved into a new home, you planted potatoes in your property as as sort of a sign of fortune and and good all the good that's to come. And so that's 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 the the, the backstory behind the the potato patch. Um, so my, my roots kind of run deep in, in this family history. And for me, I feel that the growing I do now, in a sense, really honors my family. And, um, there, there was an article I read recently in Gardens Illustrated and one of the writers and he said, there's home in homegrown. Mm. And that is that just spoke so much to me because it's true. There's home and homegrown, and it means so much. It, the things we grow and the things we touch and the things we nurture are are things in us, and they're also they're also part of our history. And and I was lucky to have this land-based family. These these people that grew things or were connected to to people that grew them. Uh, but we all have that. Whether it's skipped a generation or two, it's part of who we are. Growing things is part of being human and and I've just been lucky to cultivate it from a young age and I've I've kind of run with that because in me it gives me meaning and it and it's it's part of my genetic makeup and I think that if I didn't grow things I would only be half of who I am Mm -hmm. and and part of that is my history that land-based family and part of it is, is simply being human and 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 Part of it also is feeding my family and, and sharing the things I love with my family and my friends and my community. Mm-hmm. First of all, I just want to comment on the Portuguese tradition of growing potatoes, because if you've ever grown potatoes, you know that it's very hard to actually stop growing potatoes once you've grown them. They stick with <laughs> you in that soil for a very long time. And so it, it really is kind of a nice insurance policy against not having food ever again. <laughs> that that's that's very true and that could be that could be the very reason why we why we planted them yeah i it was one i think it was the first year i grew potatoes as an adult in colorado and i got several different kinds and uh, an older woman friend in my gardening community said well you know once a potato bed, always a potato bed. <laughs> and I didn't know at that time. But then two seasons later, I, I remembered her saying this. So, <laughs> Right, right, right. As it's I'm still digging up potatoes. And, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Huh? Right. So you have actually a very expansive gardening education yourself. At what point as a young adult did you decide to pursue gardening as a an educational field to study and then to share as an educator in your life? You know, that's a that's a wonderful question. I I I have to say that when I was in college, which is where my formal education began, I spent at least a year, maybe two years, as an undeclared major and uh, I, I think the process of taking liberal arts classes to meet my prerequisites, or not my prerequisites, but my general education requirements, led me to realize that if I was going to study something, it should be something that I was passionate about. Uh, and 
I didn't know what I was going to do with it at the time, which, you know, my, my parents would just shake their head and say, oh, I don't know what you're going to do with that, but okay. <laughs> and, and so that's when I found myself uh, taking botany classes. I, I specifically focused on plant taxonomy, which I love. And, um, and I studied soil science and um, plant physiology and ecology and those things really helped me define my world you know what's interesting is is i was actually hesitant at first to study botany i didn't want the beauty i saw in the world to be defined so scientifically that it lost its meaning Mm. and what i discovered was quite the opposite that the more i learned about plants in the plant world and nature in general, the more I could see and the more I came to appreciate the world around me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and it was really beautiful in, because I, I found I was completely wrong in my fears. Um, and I just, I ran with it. And I, I later studied garden design and started my blog around the same time. And there was a gap in there. I, you know, I had my first daughter. And, and so I, I did take a, a break from being actively involved in studying plants. And, and I was still gardening, but, but I wasn't necessarily in a garden community because I was focusing on my community closest to home. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Emily Murphy is the energy behind PassThePistol.com, a blog that celebrates life, gardening, and growing in all its forms. At some point in her educational, gardening, and writing life, Emily was struck by a feeling of having gone off course a little, and a need to be more intentional with her time, her energy, and her own growing. She writes, I had an irking feeling I needed to live my life with greater intention and to look and choose where I wanted to go. I needed to focus on the things I'd like to grow and grow more of them. So why not focus on the things you love? We'll be right back after a break to hear more. Stay with us. Grow what you love. Grow what you love. Grow what you love. What do you love? That can be the hard part. Okay, I don't love okra. Let's start there. Not growing okra. But I love lettuces and carrots and peas and herbs, all herbs. They can be thuggish plants in the garden, spreading themselves everywhere. But between their edible and scented and often medicinal foliage or roots or seeds or flowers, they are also almost always really resilient disease-resistant, and pollinator magnets. Deer don't even like them a lot of times. I must have six different perennial oreganos. Their flowers are amazing. I'm also really into any plants that produce a good tea or essential oil for aromatherapeutic purposes. Maybe this is because of speaking with Blanca Diaz of Mama Maiz a few weeks ago. This is exactly what Emily Murphy is talking about when she mentions multitasking plants. I also love narcissus, which are just ending where I live as I write. And I love salvias and buckwheats, or areogonums as they're known. Both of these are just getting started for the long, hot, dry season here. 
As Emily points out, to follow this concept of growing what you love is either an aha moment or a mm, duh moment, because sometimes we all fall for it. We hear or read or see what other people are doing, and we go along. Now is the time to plant X, Y, and Z, some gardening leader recites to us. But if I don't love X, Y, and Z, then who cares when it's time to plant it? Our time, our attention, our resources, they're limited. And our gardens should be places of comfort and joy, maybe some experimentation, and a lot of providing for life beyond ours, in the soil and in the environment. But it shouldn't yell at us, and it shouldn't shame or should on us. So don't plant okra or tomatoes or lima beans if you don't want to eat those things. Grow what you love, and you will find your garden growing you. And now back to our conversation with Emily Murphy of PassThePistol.com and Grow What You Love, her new book out now from Firefly Books. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back after a break to speak more with Emily Murphy, founder of PassThePistol.com, a name derived from the female plants of flowers, and which means, really, grow what you love and pass it on. Quite literally, pass on the flowers and the plants you grow, whether it's giving seeds to a neighbor or sharing your harvest with family and friends. In the process, Emily believes, we nurture ourselves, our families, our health, and our communities. We grow our lives. Welcome back. So you eventually took your degree in ethnobotanical resources. Talk talk about that. So ethnobotany is the study of the human relationship to plants. Mm -hmm. And I, I went to school at Humboldt State University where that degree actually did not exist. I was in the natural resource department where I could self-design a major, and that's the major I designed because I wanted, I wanted a broader picture um, than a strict botany background, and I really wanted applied science. Mm-hmm. And so that is what this major was, what, that's what it did for me. It, it helped me um, then in the career I have today, but um, it was really hands-on science. Um, Again, those soil science classes and those taxonomy classes and plant physiology really is, in a sense, horticulture and understanding those those basic principles that um, are the foundation of horticulture. And um, it was a a really wonderful opportunity that that, uh, my university could provide this self-guided, self-designed major because I could really... Uh, focus on the the area of study that I was most interested in. Yeah, and it's such a beautiful bridge between your growing up and your Portuguese heritage and gardening heritage on all sides of your family. To and then you know this serves as this beautiful bridge into what you have taken on and hope to do with with your work. You're exactly right, and and I think at the time I I I. I didn't see it that way. I, I think that sometimes we go into pursuits somewhat blindly, not knowing, not knowing the end result, mm. but that's, that's how life works. Mm-hmm. It is. And, and we just sort of, you have to, you have to let your passions kind of run at times. Of mm-hmm. course, 
there's educated risk. And at the time, it was very much an educated risk. I was getting a college degree. Um, I graduated with a Bachelor of Science. It's actually quite wonderful. But I didn't know then how it would evolve. I just knew that that was what I had to do. Which is a good, and, it's such a good reminder to hear that sometimes you don't know why exactly you're doing something, but if it feels like that's what you're supposed to be doing, go ahead and have faith in that. And it will it will reveal itself in time. The older I get, the more I honestly believe that. Right. Trust, I think having that trust is, it can be a little bit scary, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. but it's so valuable. Yeah. So why did you start your original blog? When did you start it? And what was the inspiration for that, Emily? I started Cast the Pistol in, I think, 2009. And it's been several years now. And I started it for a few reasons. I I wanted to become a better writer. That's one reason. I knew that if I didn't practice writing, I would never become a better writer. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was a way to discipline myself and uh, and ask myself to write one piece a week. And I felt like that was very doable. If I asked myself to write two things, two posts or articles a week, it wouldn't have happened. I would have quit. But I asked myself to write one article a week, and I did. And I have to say my writing was pretty terrible. But... Um, but I only got better because I practiced. Mm-hmm. And that was that was one of my reasons for starting the blog. And the other reason is is very much along the lines of the book, which is I really was interested in in growing the things I love. And the blog helped bring me to a garden community. Um, it allowed me to share my knowledge and also learn from other gardeners. I was actively engaged in the learning process again, which which is uh, really important to me. And um, and being part of a greater garden community that I found through blogging uh, is incredibly valuable. Mm. Um, and and it, it sort of it sort of grew from there. At first, the blog actually started out as shoot or pass the pistol which is a play on words um, to sort of get up and do something. Mm -hmm. And it was my urge to, okay, if you're going to do something, if you want to make something of your life, you have to get, you have to put the time and effort in. Mm -hmm. And it was also uh, passing the pistol is, you know, passing on what you know and sharing what you know. So Mm -hmm. grow what you love and pass it on, pass the pistol because pistol is the female part of the flower. So that was my double play on words. Yes. Those were my goals. Where were you in your teaching uh, trajectory at the point that you started the blog? I, I was a classroom teacher. I actually taught um, everything from uh, seventh and eighth grade math and science to a multi-age classroom, fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth, or fourth, fifth, sixth uh, multi-age classroom. And um, it's, I, what I, my goal was to transfer that teaching and sort of morph it into, back into the garden world. As much as I love my students, I was ready for a change. And I had my second daughter and it was a perfect time to to sort of shift my focus, mm-hmm. um, and 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 also focus on something that nurtured me as much as um, it allowed me to give. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of 
sort of where I was personally. And one of the things that caught my eye in your history was that there was sort of an epiphany as you as you moved into more garden education that you had this surprising realization that not everybody knew gardening was easy that you know not that it's to have a a really big well orchestrated perfectly timed seasonally maintained garden is easy it's not but to just get started and plant a few seeds and see them grow is in fact quite easy and that there were a lot of people who said wow i i would have done this earlier if i had known and i think when we're in a big garden world gardening or a tight-knit gardening community rather we forget that some people don't actually know yet how to garden and it's a great realization to open up our own minds it, it, you're exactly right. I so the experience that I that I think you're referencing that that rings true is I was I left classroom teaching and a couple of years later found myself running school gardens and you know the kids are all in once given the opportunity. Mm-hmm. The students, you know, it's like love at first sight. You give them soil and plants and they're and water. Happy. Don't forget the water and with wa- the soil, right? <laughs> right, right, and sun and all and bugs and and butterflies and bees and, and, you know, roly polies in the soil. And they, kids are just thrilled and it just resonates with us as people. And it's so genuine in children. Um, what I wasn't expecting were some of the volunteer parents who were generously volunteering their time, giving their time so their children could have these experiences. And, um, we were out in the garden had a volunteer parent with me and some of the students were planting lettuce seeds and another group of students were actually harvesting lettuce from a batch of seeds that had been planted a few weeks before. And a parent turns to me as if she just witnessed a miracle. Mm -hmm. And she said, wow, my children have been bugging me to start a garden for years. If I had known it was this simple, I would have started a long time ago, just Mm -hmm. just as you had said. And and honestly, it was a tiny moment. And and I knew in my mind, I knew, yes, not everyone wants to grow a garden. Um, Not everyone, you know, it's not for everyone. I knew that. But for some reason, this turned my world upside down and... Um, and really caused me to rethink what I'm doing. And I realized that, um, that I needed to do more and Mm -hmm. I could do more. And, and what I was teaching the kids, I, I could, I could share on a larger level. And that was really the clincher for me. That's what really got the ball rolling towards my book, Grow What You Love. Mm -hmm. I wanted to share that with the parents. (laughs) Yeah. And, and families. And of course, she was witnessing a miracle. And those of us who do it every day forget, I think, sometimes the amazing miracle that it is when you plant a seed and you see it grow. Yeah, it's it's quite wonderful, mm-hmm. isn't it? It's right. good to have those fresh eyes remind us. Mm-hmm. You're yeah. right. Every seed, inside every seed is a little baby plant waiting to grow. Right. Even in the smallest of seeds, the right. carrot seeds and the lettuce seeds, and that is amazing. Yeah. When you first started past the pistol and you gave yourself this assignment for one, one piece a week, talk about what you included and the kind of range that you started to develop, because this is clearly the foundation that then leads up into what is the, the wholeness of the book. Yeah, so I 
It's interesting because I actually feel like where I started, it's very much the foundation of your show, Cultivating Place, in that I really wanted to to dive into this this urge, this real part of us that has a connection to nature and land and soil and growing things and and that these simple things fill us up. And I I started out much of my writing was focused on those topics and it was almost like a personal journey and and trying to find the right words to describe that and and really help frame to help frame my thinking. Um, and as time went on, of course, I started to write articles that were more service um, based. So they were providing information and how to tips and because those types of articles are just as important. Oh, yeah. um, and then I just kept adding work as I grew as a writer. And I still find that I as just a single person, there's so much possibilities and areas to explore that I've just scratched the surface. Mm-hmm, exactly. And um, it's it's really it's really pretty special. So what inspired you to put together a lot of your work into in your particular way into the book Grow What You Love? And who is your target audience for the book, Emily? My target audience for the book are new gardeners and also gardeners that have existing gardens that are looking to fine tune them and and again, as we were talking about earlier, really make the most of the garden space they have on hand and focus on the things that bring the most joy. Um, Grow What You Love, there was a point in my life where not only did I have these experiences in the school garden, but I'd also lost a number of people um, living in the mountains. Um, It's a dangerous place, and I would often lose one, even more than one friend a year. And it really caused me to ask myself, you know, what am I really trying to say? What's really important? And that's when I realized what I'd been saying all along, but it sort of popped into my mind. I'm trying to say grow. I'm trying to say grow what you love, grow the things you love. And um, that that along with a collection of other experiences like that moment in the garden with the parent really got the ball rolling towards this book. And the the goal of the book is to is to hopefully do what um, I've wanted other garden books to do, which is put the plants forward, because this is a plant driven experience. And I think that when we start with the how to's um, for most of us or some of us, that can be fine, but you lose the magic. And then the people who are new to gardening are daunted because mm-hmm. they're just seeing what they have to do. They don't necessarily see the joy in that. Mm-hmm. And so when you bring the plants forward, so the plants in my book, originally how I had the proposal written and the plant organized, the plants were going to be in the front. And working with my editor, I realized, you know what? The plants really need to be at the center, the heart of the book. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, that was sort of that was a natural evolution and it and it did make sense to have those plants at the heart of the book and not only have them at the heart of the book but have them be to have them be multifaceted again and and offer recipes that are method based so that you so so readers could learn how to mix and match ingredients based upon what they might actually have growing in the garden um, not only so 
so foods don't go to waste, but also so you don't have to run to the market and, and you can also then enjoy the plants you are growing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and really get to know those plants. I tried to weave in stories and um, the goal with that was really for people to see the joy and also come to learn these plants uh, for themselves and discover that they're not so different from you and me. They have their own likes and dislikes and quirky habits. And when we learn them, uh, then we learn to grow them and they learn to thrive. And then we learn to thrive with them. And as our gardens evolve, we evolve. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was that was the goal of the book was really to that's the underpinning. And and I say in the in the in the follow up of the, of the book, the very end, you know, that it's a gritty love story for me. And 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 I really mean that. Mm-hmm. So I, I hope that comes out in the book itself. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Our guest today, Emily Murphy, has studied ethnobotanical resources, school garden education, and garden design. She currently gardens in three distinct garden areas, containers on her porch overlooking the ocean, a nearby once-neglected fenced raised bed garden on her neighbor's property, and in a community garden plot. Each of these gardens has its own distinct climate, exposure, and soil. And in each of these gardens, Emily follows her own advice to grow what you love. We'll be right back after a break to hear more. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer here. Not sure I've wished you an official happy spring enough. Having grown up with a gardening mother and a wildlife biologist father, seasonal rituals were big in our family, spring being no exception. Lent, the equinox, Easter, my mother's birthday, my mother's death day, May Day, and May baskets. These are dates that fill out the calendar of March and April in my personal life. When Emily says in the course of our conversation that her growing really honors her family, I took special note. This sentence really filled out the concept of what we love and why we love it. This is a layered and highly personal concept. For me, my mother held a generous bunch of lilies of the valley in her June wedding to my father. So lilies of the valley hold special importance in my family life. Buckwheats and salvias, they're among my favorite native plants of Northern California, and these hold special import and place in my garden. I think we all love the stories that a well-loved garden tells about its people and its place. What narrative does your garden embody? Are they the narratives you want your garden to tell? Early spring is as good a time as any to consider this, a time of rebirth, transformation, and looking forward. I'd love to hear how your garden honors your life story. If you feel called to share, send me a note via the Cultivating Place website or make a comment on this week's post at Cultivating Place on Instagram and Facebook. I'll look forward to hearing more about your garden story and how you are growing what you love. Now, back to our conversation with Emily Murphy. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back after a break to continue our conversation with Emily Murphy of PassThePistol.com and her new book, Out Now, from Firefly Press, Grow What You Love. Welcome back. 
I think that your earlier point about addressing either brand new gardeners or maybe gardeners who have become overwhelmed or daunted or gotten lost in the hard work of it and need some re-energizing and need a new reason and motivation to focus again out there. And, and I think we see this in school gardens quite a bit, actually, mm-hmm. where they get started because of the love and passion and energy of one single person. And then you remove that person and they, they go fallow. And so finding an access point for re-energizing the, the joy of the garden, I think, is very, very important. The stories that you tell and this multifaceted aspect, I think, is, is another wonderful leverage point for we don't all necessarily love gardening because we get a dig in the dirt. Sometimes we love it because we can take beautiful photographs of it. Sometimes we love it because we can make delicious things. Sometimes we love it because it just makes us spiritually and emotionally feel better after we've been out there, even Mm -hmm. if it's not perfect or beautiful or it doesn't feed your whole family for the year. And even those small reasons are enormous and good. I mean, you hit the nail on the head with that one. I completely agree. I mean, bringing bringing flowers inside, um, it can be an arugula flower, a radish Mm -hmm. flower, but bringing flowers inside from a little plot is is amazing. Having a little bit of wild, having a garden right out your door, it's your closest touch point with nature. Mm-hmm. And um, and if it's not right out your door, like for me with the garden plot, um, with the community garden plot, it's a place to go and 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 enjoy being and, and have quiet time in this community space, which is also very special. And, um, you know, there's so much meaning and it fills us up in all these simple but genuine ways that nothing else really can. Um, it's yeah. really, yeah, it's, I, I, I agree. I, which is, you know, much of the reason for writing the book at, um, you know, making it a practice in my own life as well as offering it to other people mm-hmm. and showing them that it does it's not all about the drudgery and the digging. It's it's about the joy of these plants and mm-hmm. and the many the many opportunities. The subtitle of the book is Twelve Food Plant Families to Change Your Life. What are these twelve plants and what do you mean by plant families? These are 12 sets of seasonal ingredients, and they're grouped by the type of plant that they are. So, for instance, one is edible perennials. Mm-hmm. Um, edible perennials offer their own you know, sets of, of merits. You can plant them once and tend to them a little bit, and each year they come back from season to season, um, whether it be rhubarb or asparagus or... Um, or even radicchios, um, which are quite lovely and wonderful. And, um, you know, those are all grouped into, into, into one group because of their nature and their habit mm-hmm. and, and how we care for them. And then another plant family is um, tender herbs. And tender herbs are grouped together because they're annuals, they're tender, and they, for the most part, have very similar needs and requirements and they offer in some ways many um, commonalities when cooking in the kitchen Uh, and then 
There's also perennial herbs, which, again, they differ from their herbs. They're fragrant. They're alive with, you know, so much energy and they offer flowers and food. But they they're perennial. They can be woody uh, like thyme um, and oregano um, or rosemary. And they grow from season to season, depending upon your climate. Uh, And you don't have to plant them year after year. Uh, And then, of course, there's greens. There's three chapters dedicated to greens because I I have a thing for greens. I love (laughs) I love any leafy something. And I, I really felt that to do them justice. I wanted to give people opportunities. And so there's summer greens, greens that tolerate heat. Um, and warmth that you can grow in the summer and and then there's winter greens greens that can tolerate cool weather even snow and a couple of those greens cross cross over like mizuna uh and then i i gave chard its own its own chapter chard and perpetual spinach because they're so long lasting uh they you can plant them once and then have them for not not year after year but but for multiple seasons. So you can plant them in the spring and have them grow through the fall, or you can plant them in the fall if you're in a mild climate and have them grow all the way into spring mm-hmm. until you have to plant them again. And and it, it really makes gardening easy, and you always have something to pick. Yeah. Um, so that's that's sort of the gist of, of those plant groups. And, and each of those plant groups then comes also with its possibilities in the kitchen, and um, which I think greens fill the, that space quite a bit. And one of my favorite chapters is companion plants and edible flowers. Yeah. And edible flowers are a, a joy for so many reasons. And mostly because we get flowers, but also because, you know, we, we have these edible treats, um, foods and colors and flavors that brighten up our food and also are a mecca for birds and bees and butterflies. And, and I love this chapter because it's an invitation to invite wildness into our gardens and into our lives. And, and um, really make a spot for that and let it be okay to uh, to let our gardens run a little bit wild and and you know you might have a you might have a, a well-designed garden plot it might be a perfect grid pattern or it might not it might just be a you know an in-ground plot whatever it is to let that garden overflow and really become um, a life of its own is, is special and I think that this chapter in particular speaks to that and 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 provides you know a starting point for what to plant uh, between and in an, and in and amongst veggies and and fruits to to add that bit of wild. Mm-hmm. And I think many of us come to this realization out of nothing but neglect. We accidentally don't pick enough lettuce, and then it bolts in the heat, and then it goes to seed. And then you see the flowers, and you see the bugs coming to the flowers, and you can eat the flowers. And you got there because you did something you thought you weren't supposed to do, but it worked out anyway. You're, you're right, whether it be lettuce or cilantro or right. or even, even letting your thyme and your oregano go to flower yeah. or your 
or your rosemary. I mean, of course, rosemary, but even basils. And, mm-hmm. you know, we keep pruning away at those basils to, to keep the leaves coming. But but the bees love those flowers mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and the flowers are edible. Right, right. And ultimately, the seeds will come and you can collect those and, and plant them again. Um, so what were your what were your biggest challenges in writing the book? Time, mm. I would say time. I I had to be very disciplined and really clear my thoughts and protect my thoughts. Um, I began writing the book in uh, October of 2016, if that's at all telling, mm. with the uh, election cycle. And by the time November came around, I had to turn off the news. I mm. couldn't listen to the news because I was trying to write a book about love mm. and and um, to stay in that place and to do it quickly, I had to protect my thoughts and really be disciplined. And I, I would spend six days writing. I would take one day off and just dedicate. I just had to completely immerse myself into it so that I could um, do my very best to paint a picture, not just provide a how-to book, because um, the book is very full of, of nitty-gritty how-tos, but also provide um, an experience that people would would be um, encouraged to replicate in their own way, to make my story their story, mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and again, run with it. Um, and to do that, I really had to immerse myself in it and... and um, and accept that. Jump in with two feet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When you look at your own arc and your own growth and maturity as a gardener, as a writer, as a, an educator in this realm, what are your greatest hopes for your own garden as and, and encouraging other people to garden as we move forward? Now, I... It's interesting, the process of writing the book and uh, looking at my gardens where I am now, I've realized that my hopes for my own garden and for myself and my family are to continue finding beauty and to share those things with other people um, and to, to hopefully extend that to my greater community. Mm-hmm. I, I started a, a community gleaning program, um, and I, I, I think there's po- real possibilities for that. But our gardens are, our gardens are important. They they make a real difference, and t- together collectively, our patchwork of gardens can make a lasting impact, uh, not only on our our local environment, but on our our global community. I, I think it was Michael Pollan in his article titled Why Bother that he said something to the effect of, you know, growing a garden is is one of the most uh, powerful things an individual can do to help the environment. Mm-hmm. And I I agree with him and, and I think it's so much more. I think that, you know, not only are we growing our own food in some instance, instances, we're growing some of our own food. Uh, we're also, you know, creating habitat for 
again for for animals and habitat for ourselves and places of beauty where we can recharge and restore and face the world and hopefully make a difference in our own way. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's kind of where I am now in my work and and the works I'm hoping to develop in the next two to five years. Yeah. So this will be a tough question, but if you have a favorite recipe in the book, because I, I do enjoy so much how there are recipes associated with every plant that you recommend um, trying in, in the book. And I have a couple that I have earmarked that I would like to try. Do you have a favorite recipe, Emily? Oh, it's so hard. It would, it would I, be hard, I know. It's hard because each season, I have all these seasons. I have berry season and I have cucumber season, right? And, and, and so the foods and my favorite recipes are really dependent upon the season. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, right, right, right now I love the, my favorite recipe is the frittata recipe in the book yeah. because it allows me to toss in greens and herbs that I have in the garden. And, and if I have mustard, I put mustard in. If I have kale and chard, I put kale and chard in and you can use basil which is not growing now, but right now I do have parsley and a little bit of cilantro. So that can go in mm-hmm. and, and it's easy to make. Yeah. Um, so that right now I would say that's my favorite recipe, but if you asked me in a couple of months, I might say that it's the, uh, rosemary and honey ice cream or, <laughs> or, or my, or a berry shrub to go with warming temperatures. Exactly, exactly. Well, I've got savory galette on my uh, my uh, docket for the weekend, so. Oh, oh, that is so good. And if you make the crust with uh, a mix of whole wheat and white flour, mm. it and add in a little bit of Parmesan cheese and maybe even a little pepper flakes, uh, and it's it's like dessert. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today, Emily. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Emily Murphy is an organic gardener with a Bachelor of Science in Ethnobotanical Resources from Humboldt State University, where she studied botany, environmental science, and ecology, as well as religious and cultural studies and herbal medicine. She later studied garden design with the California School of Garden Design and worked as a classroom teacher and school garden educator. She teaches and speaks regularly about gardening and living. Here, photography, cooking, and weekly thoughts can be found in her blog, PassThePistol.com. Her new book, Grow What You Love, is out now from Firefly Books. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. The program is made possible by the CSU Chico Research Foundation, NSPR, and you. Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. Original theme music by Matt Schiltz. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.